There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. First uh, Samuel chapter 7, please, or 8 even. If you can, stand when you get that. Down to verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to his own horsemen. He will run some before his chariots, who appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out on that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and Lord we know that uh, in your word is life and we pray Father that life would be taken into our hearts and then would be practiced into our lives we put all that upon you Lord for we know that we have no good things within ourselves that it is only by your spirit and your word that we are made holy I ask these things in Christ's name Amen thank you please be seated There's a book entitled, Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon. As you might guess, it's not a real uplifting read. The author chronicles the nearly 700 deaths that have taken place at the Grand Canyon since the 1870s. But the surprising thing is, what was not that so many people have died there, but the way in which many of the deaths have occurred. A number of people have fallen to their deaths simply because they were joking around. 
1992, a 38-year-old father was teasing his teenage daughter and pretended to lose his balance and fall, laughing at the gag. One second he was pranking his daughter, and suddenly the fake fall became very real. He stumbled a bit too far and fell 400 feet to his death. More recently, in 2012, an 18-year-old young lady was hiking around the North Rim with friends and thought it would be fun to have her picture taken next to the edge where there was a sign that clearly said, Stay away. Just an ironic picture picture of her Facebook to show that she was a true adventurer. And as she clambered to where the sign stood, several rocks gave way beneath her, and she fell 1,500 feet to her death. As a pastor, I've discovered that people often blow off warnings by minimizing the consequences. And their minds are just having fun. But what we don't realize is that it is all leading somewhere. That's part of what we'll be looking at this morning. The Lord, through Samuel, will warn Israel of the king that they are demanding. But like those who died at the Grand Canyon, they too will not heed the warnings and will also suffer the consequences. If you remember from last week, we left a very upset Samuel who prayed to the Lord concerning this request. Verse 7 will give us the Lord's answer. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. When Samuel seeks God's answer, he discovers in verse 7 and 8 that the people were not really rejecting Samuel because of his age, as they have said outwardly. God sees their hearts, and he tells Samuel what is really happening. God tells Samuel, don't take it personally. It's not about you. Now, why would God say that? Because Samuel was God's servant. The Israelites hadn't elected him. Samuel had been the leader of Israel because God had chosen him to be the leader of Israel. And thus, any rejection of Samuel was actually a rejection of God and his leadership. Maybe that's a lesson for us also this morning. Don't take it personally. It's not about you. The same advice that God gives to Samuel is the same advice that he gives to us. When people irritate us, snub us, insult us, or anger us, we shouldn't take it personally. It's not about us. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about the Lord. In fact, how we respond when we are treated badly is a good barometer of our spiritual maturity level. Hear the words of Jesus on this. But you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. In other words, when people mistreat you, don't take it personally. It's not about us. We have to realize that as Christians, whenever we take a stand for the things of God, the rejection we may face often has nothing to do with us. Often it is simply a rejection of the God that we represent. Have you ever heard that phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Well, we are the messengers. 
So that means we're just going to have to get used to some degree of rejection. And how we respond to that will speak volumes to those around us. Sadly, though, often those who supposedly represent Christ leave much to be desired in this area. I recently read about an interview with a woman who was a representative of a supposed Christian group that had apparently shown up at certain events with provocative signs that condemned homosexuality. One of the signs they waved read, faggots are going to hell. The interviewer asked the woman why the group felt it was necessary to be so confrontational. The lady replied, well, we first started out protesting in the local park with signs that warned the parents that it was a place for homosexuals to gather. But we were met there with people shouting and cursing at us. And so we decided we were going to respond tit for tat. Now think about that. This supposed group of Christians who were dedicated to opposing the sin of homosexuality, but they had forgotten who they really belonged to. They were so caught up in their anger and their self-righteousness that when they were abused and mistreated by others, they took it personally. They intended to respond tit for tat. They forgot that they had been bought with a price. Listen to the words of 1 Peter 2.20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, that is commendable towards God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him to him who judges justly. Did you hear what Peter was telling us? They cursed him. They insulted him. They beat him. And finally, they crucified him. And if Jesus did not respond tit for tat, then we shouldn't either if we are claiming to represent him. So what will life be like under this new king that the people we're going to serve look like? The next few verses will give us our answer. Verse 9. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them, and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. Samuel, in effect, says to them, listen up. This is what it will mean to live under a human government. And what is the first thing this new king is going to do? The ways of the king who would rule over them are characterized by the repeated verb, take. Not much has changed, has it? That's because it takes a lot of manpower and structure 
to accomplish what God does way easier. Are you sure you want a king? Samuel asked the people. He'll take the fruit of your labor. You're going to pay a big price for this monarchy that you want to establish. Now, government is expensive indeed. In our country, the wages that we earn from January 1st to May 16th all go to pay our taxes. May the 16th. So my advice to you next year is just wait to go to work until May the 17th. (laughs) Just kidding. Please don't do that. Now, Samuel's catalog of the things that they could expect from the king came to a dramatic climax with these words, and you shall be his slaves. If they insisted on rejecting the divine king who redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, they would soon find themselves in slavery again, which segues perfectly into verse 18. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, we find the commentary on this event in the 13th chapter of Hosea. Listen to how accurate the word of the Lord is to what we are looking at this morning. This is the Lord speaking. It is to your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is the king that he may serve you in all your cities? And the judges of whom you requested, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. They demanded, we want a king. And so God says, you want a king? All right, have it your way. Get it? Burger King, have it your way. If you thought that was bad, you're looking to groan at this next part. We see the people didn't relish it. In fact, it put them in a real pickle. And glory is left. <laughs> well, at least you didn't throw anything, right? <clears throat> we learned that the nation of Israel eventually had 41 kings. And from all those kings, only 11 followed God. And seven of those disregarded God completely during the last years of their reign. The spiritual rebellion led the nation of Israel to be captured by other nations and brought them to the very brink of extinction. But you know what? They had no one to blame but themselves. As we have just seen in the previous verses we covered, the Lord made the consequences to their actions very plain. That's why he had Samuel forewarn them. You may be thinking, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with me this morning? Well, actually, quite a lot. You see, the Lord has also made very clear in his word the consequences of our sinful decisions. Like the people in our story, sometimes we want another king to rule over us, which normally means king me. We said in the past that it's funny that the middle letter of sin is the letter I. And any time I choose to put myself on the throne of my life, a place in which only God has the right to reign, I'm heading for dire circumstances. Because the moment Bill Scott decides that he can run his life apart from the Lord, well, let's just say that God is not all that impressed with me. This may shock you, 
but the Lord has never once called me Pastor Bill. So God tells us what the manner of king is that will that sin will be to us and how it will always eventually bring misery into our lives. I believe God has a plan for each of us. And if we choose not to follow it, God will not stop us. That sin that has you captive, that habit that you have, God will never stop you from going back to those. He has warned us of the dangers, but he will not treat us as some type of robot. C.S. Lewis once said, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Basically, the Lord is saying, Thy will be done, O Israel. He says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Basically, the Lord is saying here, Thy will be done, O Israel. You will now be fashioned with the very rod that you have made. And as we will soon see, they're going to get the king that they ask for. He is tall and handsome, and he never has a recorded prayer in the Bible. He says things like, If you don't come and fight, I will kill all of your animals. And once we start fighting, no one eats anything until we win. Meaning, if I don't win... You all will die. And at the very end of his life, he goes to a witch for guidance. His name is Saul. Do you know what Saul means in Hebrew? Say all. It means to ask. Literally, it means you asked for it. Sometimes the greatest judgment that God can give us is to let us have our own way. Psalm 106.15 says, And he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. God can give us what we ask for. But I've discovered that it is infinitely wiser to say, Lord, here's the way I see it. Here are my thoughts about this. But, Lord, you see what I don't. You know what I can't. So I happily defer to your perfect plan for me. The old adage remains true. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Always. Look at verse 19 with me. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We know from Judges 2.16 that Samuel would be the last of the judges whom the Lord raised up to save Israel from her enemies. And if you remember back when we went through the book of Judges, the book records how typically the people would not listen to the judges. And so maybe it should not surprise us at all that the heir of the judges will also end with the people's refusal to obey the voice of the last judge, Samuel. This was the kind of thinking that drove Christ to the cross when on that day they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. When the elders asked to have a king like all the other nations, they were forgetting that Israel's strength was to be unlike all the other nations. The Israelites were God's covenant people, and he was their king. The glory of God dwelt in their midst, and the law of God was their wisdom. 
But they wanted a unified nation with a strong military leader and a huge standing army. This, they believed, would at last bring them lasting security. They knew in their hearts the right way to live, yet they were in a sort of self-denial about the consequences that had been promised to them if they chose to have a king. That's nothing new, though, is it? In his book, Aha, Kyle Eidelman speaks of this. He writes, My wife and I recently watched one of those shows that goes something like this. One, find the most disgusting thing people unknowingly encounter every day, say wood pulp and fast food beef, and then two, make a half-hour expose on it. He continues, I know it's ridiculous, but it's the kind of show that if you watch for five minutes, you're hooked. In this particular episode, the reporter visited different hotels, and black light in hand, the reporter would walk into one of the rooms, and the purple glow of his truth-detecting light would illuminate all kinds of germs and stains in the room, bright neon against the bedspread. In one of the more disturbing scenes, the reporter waited in the lobby looking for a victim. He finally cornered some poor, unsuspecting couple, probably enjoying what had thus far been a great vacation, and asked if they would submit their room to the black light experiment. My wife and I started involuntarily talking to the TV at this point, he says. Don't do it. This is going to ruin your anniversary. Run away now. Sadly, the couple agreed to take the crew up to their room. So the husband and wife and the reporter and his camera crew all crowded into the elevator. The reporter held back any indication that he knew what was going to happen. Meanwhile, the poor couple was on the verge of what would be a scarring moment, and they were obliviously making small talk about the museums in town. They got to the hotel room and walked in with the lights on. Everything looked pristine, as if room service had been there within the past hour. My wife and I commented on the cleanliness of the room and the crispness of the bedsheets. This could be the one room that survived the test. Suddenly, the lights went out, and there was a moment of silence like you might expect in a movie theater just before the monster is revealed. The black light came on, and stains showed up everywhere. Unbelievably, it was even worse than all the previous rooms they had seen. The neon glow was everywhere, including a suspiciously large stain in the middle of the carpet. As my wife and I groaned, we heard the people start to panic. The wife began to scream. You'll never guess what she screamed over and over again. Turn that off. Turn that off. Turn that off. After a few seconds, she rushed over to turn the lights back on herself, and everything looked normal again. She started to calm down, emitting some nervous laughter, and said, There, now that's better. But here's the thing. The stains were still there. The couple could no longer see them, but that didn't change the reality of the stain's existence. The word for this is denial. Denial is turning off the black light in an effort to make the stains disappear. You pretend everything is okay when everything is not okay. Denial can be defined this way. Denial is a defense mechanism in which a person is faced with a fact that is too uncomfortable to accept, so they reject it despite overwhelming evidence. Recently, I read about another type of denial, 
Why do you think the number one way is for people when they get a bill in the mail that they don't know how to pay? You guessed it. They don't open the envelope. The truth is too uncomfortable, so they pretend like everything is okay. This is the same reason that women who have a family history of breast cancer are sometimes the last ones to get a mammogram, or why men who have a family history of heart disease often ignore all the warning signs. The evidence may be there. It may be overwhelming. But our response is like the lady in our story. Turn that off. Turn that off. Turn that off. The thing is, there are consequences to all of our actions. Now, some consequences may sneak up on us, but others were warned of right from the very start. For example, how about overeating? I mean, we all know what supersizing will do to you. We know that hot wings and cheese fries aren't healthy, and so when a heart attack comes, should we really be surprised? No, not really. Why? Because it's a natural consequence to those actions. And many of us may be involved in things, sinful habits, moral compromises, ethical lapses, or spiritual accommodations that we rationalize as trivial, petty, or unimportant. Though we know better, we dabble in these things because we think they are too insignificant to worry about. We think they're really no big deal. Later on, though, we discover that living our lives on such fault lines ultimately results in inconceivable damage to ourselves and to those around us. We let down a few standards here, a few scruples there, and we say, oh, it isn't that big of a deal. When we do that, a kind of unavoidable domino effect somehow magnifies and multiplies the most insignificant of spiritual breaches. Sin has consequences, and those consequences cannot be swept under the rug. Cracks in our character, regardless of how imperceptible they may be at first, inevitably cause immense damage. Verse 21, please. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Read that the Lord says, Go ahead, heed their voice, and make them a king. We've all heard that old saying, You made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. Now God, of course, will forgive us of our demand in our own way, but he may not remove the consequences of those actions. I believe there is both a perfect and a permissible will of God for everyone. Therefore, the best way to pray is to pray like Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, you know what's best, Father, and I submit myself to that. We must ask ourselves this morning, what are we to learn from this extraordinary moment in the history of Israel that we have witnessed in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Its lesson comes into clear focus, I think, when we look at it from another vantage point from another day many years later. On the day I have in mind, a man stood before the great pagan political power of that day, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate put a question to this man. Are you the king of the Jews? 
His reply was, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be delivered unto the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. You see what he's saying? I'm not a king like all the other nations. The gospel of the New Testament is there is a king worth having. But he is a king whose kingship is altogether different from the king demanded by the elders in 1 Samuel chapter 8. He is not of this world. To want a leader like the leaders of this world is faithless and foolish. To think that the leaders of this world can give us true and lasting security, peace, and justice is delusional. Instead, the message of the gospel is that there is a king whose justice is altogether different from the justice that Samuel warned the people they would get from the king that they were asking for. For Jesus is a king who does not take. He is a king who gives even to the point of his very life. Here is a king to judge us, who brings a different security, a different peace, and a different justice. How different is he from the king demanded in chapter 8? We see that one king would bring bondage and slavery, and the other king would bring freedom and joy. But to fully experience that freedom and joy... We have to turn away from the world and submit ourselves to this one true king. In closing, a devoted missionary home on furlough was asked to speak in the neighborhood where he had spent his youth. After the service, a former boyhood companion approached him asking, Bob, you have something that I don't have. I'd give the world if I could experience your joy and victory. The missionary replied, John, That's exactly the price that I paid. It cost me the world. And I found it to be true that to renounce the world's fleeting and unsatisfying pleasures is not actually giving up very much. It seems like the hardest thing for so many people to do. Years ago, I was a chaplain for hospice, and when I would talk to people who knew they were going to die, do you know what no one ever said to me? I wish I could have drank just a little bit more. Or I wish I could have got involved more in pornography. Or I wish I could have squeezed in just one more affair. Or I wish I could have made just a little bit more money. Never did I hear things like that. But here's the thing. Unless the Lord raptures us, we are all terminal. The only difference is our expiration dates. So let's live like each day may be our last by putting Christ on the throne of our hearts. I can assure you... We will never be sorry for doing that. And Lord, you are the true king, the king of kings, the only king worth serving. And you're also our brother. Eternity will not be long enough to understand such things, that you love us, that you've chosen us, that you'd even die for us as if we were the only person that ever lived. Help us to live our lives out of that truth that we would do things not trying to earn your favor, but because we have your favor, we just want to be obedient children. We ask these things in your name. Amen.